Kirsten Lightman, um, I want to do that. We're not worthy bow, but, but Tyler's not going to allow me. She's going to shout. You know when I go down and I bow like this? <laughs> because what you achieved is sensational. I know it's not your first rodeo out in the Dakar, but this was unassisted. You, uh, how can I put this? I'm trying to explain to people, thanks for joining me on the show, by the it's way, and, and coming up from Cape Town. We really appreciate that. How do you describe to people how you did Dakar? Because it's like the desert. You're by yourself. You're fixing your own bike. You're sleeping out there. It's rough, man. Oh. It's another level. Maybe just explain to us. Oh, Can I just do this? Yes. Tyler's going to shout, and she gets very aggressive. Firstly, thanks, yes. Um, yeah. Lucky to be here with you. Um, how I did it? You know, I keep getting asked that question, and there's no recipe i don't mm. think but i think it's a whole life long of of racing um being on a bike since the age of eight and you know as we all have struggles through our lives and being an, an athlete or just a businessman who trying to we we're saying earlier just hustling yeah. you know you it teaches you to you know you keep pushing and you know going to dakar 2023 oh my gosh i never expected that i really went there in a big went there a bit uh, ignorant and the old saying goes, ignorance is bliss. Um, <laughs> but yes, yeah, the weather forecast that was thrown at us it wasn't on the weather forecast. It wasn't predicted. So it caught everyone off guard. And it sort certainly caught us off guard, you know. It rained <laughs> in the desert. Like, Are you kidding me? Torrential rain. Like the one stage we got to kilometer 350 checkpoint two, they pulled us off the tracks. We had to do a 200 kilometer liaison, liaison home in this rain. My bike was running. I was, had to lean it sideways just to, to counteract for the wind being blowing against us. And it wasn't just like, we couldn't go faster because we're getting chaperoned by an organizer car. Um, and we're going like max 90 k's an hour. But now you've got wind coming, at, wind and rain coming at this angle. It's freezing cold. And it's just 200 k's at 90 k's an hour. It took us, what, two hours to get home. It was painful. It was cold. And like Cape Town you've just raced for 350 k's. <laughs> you've been on the bike since 4 o'clock that morning. And then you get him back in the dark, um, and and they cancel the stage because um, the water was it was just too dangerous to be out on the track. That was when the cars and um, cars carried on. The bikes were cut off. There's videos of the trucks way over their tires in in in, in these rivers that just came out of nowhere. I mean, Saudi Arabia gets seven days of rain I was a about year, to say. and it happened on the seven days of the 14 stages at Dakar. But like. I haven't seen rain like that. It was actually quite scary, and it just never let up. Well, thank goodness you made it through. <laughs> um, but the Malimoto, I think for those that don't know, means that you start and finish by yourself without a team. You the mechanic, you the driver, <laughs> you the masseuse, I suppose. <laughs> you do all of these things, you right? Do everything. Do you, is, it, is it like... When you go to bed, you're like, oh, my word. What? You know, there must have been moments where you're like, what am I doing? No, stage two, I already broke. I broke really? on stage two, yeah. That was my first crack. My first of many. Wow. Um, yeah, and it was just like, because that was the, the, the ignorance coming through. And I was like, I said to Bryony, she was with the, there with me, my partner. And I said, I don't know how I'm going to do this because I certainly, this and this was just solely speaking. This was before the weather hit us. This was just two days um, of really long stages and really long liaisons and probably averaging both days 12, 13 hours on the bike mm. per day. Um, and then you were dealing with the cold as well, and this is before the rain even came, and the riding was so difficult. They really threw, in those first two stages, 
I mean, the first stage, I think, was 350-odd Ks, and the second stage, we did 430 kilometers. Mm. And I remember just putting on social media that that was the hardest Dakar stage I've ever done. This is just speaking in reference to Dakar 2020. And it's just one of the hardest days I've had on a motorbike. You know, know, you've got 430 Ks of riding, um, and you're thinking they've got to let up, they've got to let up, surely. And it's not just that navigation was really hard at the same time. And then you come in, and I was exhausted and now I know on my way back home I've got to service my bike I've only done two days and I've got another 12 days to go and that that just I know it's over it's overwhelming and I wasn't supposed to think like that but that was the first crack and it was just I mean there was I cracked every day but I just carried on I don't know how like you asked me just now I think there's just you know there's so much that goes into getting there Mm. and I was supposed to race 2022 and last year was an exceptionally hard year for me um, you know, with the news of not going to Dakar and everything thereafter. So it gave me a bit more time to prepare. But I think, you know, like I said, when I released that news of not going to Dakar 2022, everything happens for a reason. Because if I think I'd gone in 2022 to race 2022, I wouldn't have been emotionally, I think, ready to take it on because it was uh, it was very emotionally taxing. It was physical. It was everything. So I think that extra year of prep and you know, working with myself and, you know, growing up a lot. I did a lot of growing up last year. Definitely enabled me to to get through what what happened now in 2023. When you got the news in 2022, did you, I mean, I suppose there was soul searching that had to go in there. Was there a point where you crossed your mind, you're like, what am, what am I doing? Why am I, you know, this is not meant to be. Obviously now in hindsight, we can say, well, there's silver lining to yeah. it. But did you think at some point you're like, it's clearly not meant to be. Well, you know, I'm I'm like I'm quite spiritual in the sense, and over my career with it being such a dangerous sport, um, I kind of believe if it's meant to be, it will be. You know, I've I've woken up um, early on in my career. I've woken up in the morning and I've had this feeling, like you know, that gut feeling um, where I shouldn't race. I go out and race and end up breaking my collarbone. <laughs> so I've learned to listen wow. to listen to that little voice. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's it's, it's something like. Um, testing positive with four proper PCR tests before flying out to Dakar. I mean, if there aren't any other red flags, you know, it's, and I like, and it's gambling. You know, you're going to Dakar already, and you're gambling. It's such a dangerous race, and there, there really are so many deaths at Dakar nearly every year. And this year was actually the first year there wasn't mm. a death of a competitor. Um, so to go there, that, you that want continues. Yes. Um, so you want to go there with with all the boxes ticked, you know, and you don't want to go there with already a red flag before you've even taken off. Yeah. And I said, Yana's everything's happening for a reason. And um, on the eighth of January, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Oh. So, you know, I would have been mid race. Um, and for me, family comes first. She passed away in April. Oh. Yeah. So, that's where the that's, the last year I was. I understand. Then, so there's a lot of setbacks. Oh, they were last year was. You know, you know, I was so upset about not going to Dakar, and then I got the news of my mom. Um, and then, you know, she went really quickly, but I moved up to Joburg and I nursed her till, till her passing. And, you know, I spoke to my sponsors and they were very understanding. Um, you know, ASP initially with the whole COVID thing, they were also like, yeah. if, it, if this is happening for a reason, you know, we pull it now and yeah. we go next year. You know, and they were incredible in the sense that they were going to support me and do what it takes to get to the start line. Yeah. And then with my mom um, getting diagnosed with cancer and then me I just put I literally didn't touch ride a motorbike or exercise for the four and a half months that my mom was sick you know mm. I just moved up to Joburg and I nursed her every day um, so everyone was understanding yeah. family first and then you know my life kind of kicked off straight after that we moved to Cape Town 
and then it was like okay now um you know life goes on um yeah. and work towards Dakar and in, in in that you know you say soul searching and uh, working on myself I, I did a lot of growing up last year a lot of maturing dealt with the biggest loss of my life you know I thought that not going to Dakar was no you know family it puts it into perspective yeah, completely it puts life into perspective yeah. you know and how short life is my mom was only 60 oh no one minute she was fine um completely normal super intelligent woman um most independent woman you'll ever meet and super strong and poof within four months she, four months she was gone you know oh. so yeah that's terrible as well just you know puts into it makes you realize that life is so short and you know family is important so yeah um well, i'm sure she is in heaven looking down at you going <laughs> that is my girl <laughs> i mean because dakar wasn't just about finishing for no. you there was a lot more meaning to it and and also i mean what a lot of people don't realize, and, and it has come through the media, is that you stopped to save someone. You were, you know what I'm saying? Rescue yeah. someone and yeah. make sure they were okay. And I, I saw an interview you did. I know it wasn't the longest yeah. time that you were with that person, but at the same time, a minute in Dakar can it's be the lot. difference between a podium spot. For sure. Tell us a bit more. I mean, you came across, I know it's a, a guy that you know very well, you've ridden with before, but what was crossed your mind? Because... When I saw your interview, you described like you guys almost went down the one bit and then you landed it and yeah. he didn't. Yeah, just because of our feet positioning. Yeah. So riding on uh, generally on a motorbike, you ride with your feet on the foot pegs with underneath like on the arch of your feet um, because that's where, you know, you don't want to be too far back because then you land hard, you can hyperextend. Or you don't be too far forward because then you, you're going to be on your heels and there's not much control there. Mm. So that way when the foot pegs like this, you've got control back and forth and movement's good to get to the brake and the and the, the gear lever. And he obviously was just shifted too far back. And as he landed, both, you know, he oh, hyperextended yeah. and that's the brake in the one ankle, the sprain in the other, which at the time he thought was both. Um, and it's just it's so – and you know what? Yes – Initially, when he la- fell off the bike in front of me, I was like, whoa, what's going on? Because, um, and he said to me, my ankles, my ankles. And I know from his um, previous injuries, he both broke those ankles. And he wasn't crying and he wasn't in a lot of pain. But the moment I saw that he was okay and wasn't like life-threatening, the first thing that went through my mind, and every time you pass someone in Dakar that's got a mechanical or an injury is, okay, they're okay. But the disappointment, yeah. you know, the the sacrifice to get to that race people sell their houses and go live in storage units That's crazy and they end up losing their family because what wife's going to put up with someone yeah. living in a storage unit or whatever the case may be because they dedicate their lives to get to these races and um you know for something on such a small minuscule little you know it's a small place and it's so easy to make a mistake and you know dakar's not just about getting to the stars, getting their fits and the bikes prepped. And, you know, you can have the best of everything, but your stars have to align at the same yeah. time. It is luck. Dakar, you need luck. you got to. Because you're racing 14 stages, 9,000 kilometers. Things are going to go wrong. <laughs> it's guaranteed. Um, but to, for them not to go wrong enough for to end your race. So when Michelle crashed, I was just heartbroken yeah. for the guy. Because it could have been me. Because I, I, just because I landed it, um, that really could have yeah. been me and it could have been my race over, you know. And, yeah. Just the thought of that is is gut wrenching. So um, glad he's okay, and that's always the best thing is to see when you see someone that's that's hurt. You always you know they're hurt, but you know it could have been a lot worse. Yeah. And that's always kind of what we think in Dakar because uh, it is it's normally a high speed crash that doesn't end very well. Mm. And this year they 
the guys really got the route really well in terms of the navigation being a lot harder, slowing the route down, and they obviously made big effort with the roadbook to to notify us because that's what the roadbook does. It warns you when there are certain points and, and what to watch out for. So it was a good good rally from their side in terms of, of planning and roadbook because the safety factor was showed off in the amount of injuries that there were. So, yeah, he's, he's on the mend. I mean, the, he's, Michelle's already back on the bike. So <laughs> Kirsten, maybe explain to us a little bit about the route. You said, like, it does become a bit of a surprise at times. Is it r- true that you find out on the morning of the stage yeah. where you're going or, so, or how long it is? Yeah, so previously they used to issue road books the night before, um, which you would then get your road book and it was just plain black and white with the whole route for the day, the racing stage, and then you could color them with highlighters. Uh, for instance, a triple triple caution for me, I'd mark in red. Okay. So that's how you associate things because you, you know, you're, you, you're going so fast and there's so many things happening at once. You're watching what you're doing. You're trying to look at the road book. You kind of associate colors with what's coming up at that kilometer reading. So you briefly look at your kilometer reading with your trip meter and then you're looking down at the direction that you're going and what the color That's is. mad. Yeah, no, it's multitasking <laughs> at another level. And what speed are you going at this uh, point? I'm not going anything like the top guys are, but, you know, I was averaging between 60, 70, 80 kilometers a day per hour over yeah. a three, 400 kilometer special. So my max speed, I mean, I'm not the fastest rider because I'm quite scared of speed. But my sure. max speed was 127. But the top guys are limited to 160. Okay. But and those boys will be on the limit the whole time. 160. But yeah, that's that's everywhere. That's insane. No, no, it's crazy. Like. But even so, let's say you're doing 80 k's an hour. You're in the desert. There's dunes. There's rocks. rocks. There's the works. And you're now looking yeah. at a road book. <laughs> it's ultimate multitask. Everyone thinks like follow the guy in front of you, but the moment you follow in the guy in front of you, you're not seeing that there's a donga there because mm. the road book will mark that all for yeah. you. It'll tell you that a kilometer. 264 you're going to go through a wadi and go there's a there'll be a, a, a little uh, icon that uh, illustrates a step down and then a step up if you look in and you go in a 80 or even 100 kilometers out the oak in front of you hit that thing boom yeah that's where most accidents happen at dakar the guy follows the guys follow the guy in front of them they're not following their road book um, and also on you if you're following your road book you're picking up waypoints and waypoints is um how you stay on track yeah. and then also if you miss a waypoint time penalty so, you know, you can, you must be thinking, like, I'm following that guy. Um, and you see him in the distance because we're in the desert now and there's lots of big open spaces. But you didn't see that he went left left and turned there, but you've just seen him there. And you cut across and there's a waypoint eclipse yeah. there and you've now lost 40 minutes. Or uh, do what, to make up 30 seconds? No. So that's why the guys say, first thing, never, na- never ride faster than you can navigate and always follow your roadbook. Having a look at this year's Dakar, looking ahead to next year, has it changed your passion for for the Dakar? Because when I first met you, um, you didn't do the Malimoto. Yeah. And I was like, oh, my word, this is insane. Like, yeah. you know, just based on the fact that it is how far it is, and you're out on a bike, you're navigating, you're trying to deal with all the elements, uh, the terrain. Um, but I see that fire's lit. Yeah. And obviously 2022 is, was a very big disappointment. Mm. But 2023, there's been a lot to celebrate. Yes. So it's 2024. Is it still the fire burning? Because you seem to have a great team around you. Uh, I know Brad does some incredible work. Mm. Um, but your sponsors also. Yeah. Is that fire still burned despite the stage two where you're going, <laughs> oh, my word, what am I doing here? You know, it's it's funny you actually ask that question. You're like, after 2020, I kind of got back from that Dakar. And I was like, mm, don't know if I want to do it again. You know, because... 
it was hard, but it was more emotionally difficult 2020 being because, you know, I from going back to my accident in 2013 being a high-speed accident and now coming across three deaths at Dakar 2020 yeah. on track, high-speed accidents. And then I was battling with myself uh, mentally, like, you, you survived 2013. Why do you put yourself back into the situation? And there were so many close calls because the race was so fast. Mm. And comparing 2020 to 2023, 2020 was like a highway, literally like a highway in terms of technicality of the road book and the, and, um, the riding terrain. Um, so, yeah, it's now the difference between then. I left that race feeling like I don't want to go back because I felt so unsafe doing it. I'm yeah. glad that I've got through it safely. But after 2020, I felt like I hadn't got my true Dakar experience. So I had grown up watching Dakar from a young girl. Yeah. And South America was where it was at, you know, Chile, Bolivia, Argentina, Peru, and that that adventure. And that's why we, a lot of people love Dakar because they love that adventure and, you know, crossing borders and going from the Peru deserts um, and the, in the dunes at 40 degree heat up into the Andes and the Oaks are battling to breathe because of the lack of oxygen Next and it's level. freezing cold and then they're in the Amazon and crossing rivers and then the terrain was just forever changing and then you've got the people that are so that love the sport so much um, so I felt like being in Saudi Arabia I was kind of missing that sense of adventure and I know it's it'll get better in Saudi with the with the with the crowds and the awareness because it's still developing there it's only been there for 21, 20, 21, 2, 3, 4 years. Mm. So it'll get bigger and better. But I hadn't had that sense of adventure. And, you know, speaking to a lot of people after 2020, everyone said to me, if you want the true Dakar experience, into the original class, which is the Malemoto class. That's how they did Dakar <laughs> back when it first That's started. Cowboys, eh? 45 years ago. So wow. from Parry to Dakar, off yeah. you go. Fit what you can on your bike. Here's an 80-liter drum. <laughs> we'll see you at the next bivouac. Like, frickin' now, that was adventure, yeah. you know? Um, and they've kept the class going on all the years, and that's why they've gone from the male moto, meaning male, meaning trunk, and mm -hmm. moto, meaning bike. And now that's now changed to the original by motor class, being in the original class. Mm -hmm. And um, they still get, and that's, you know, I thought, yeah, I, I love the mechanical side of, I love working on my motorbike. Mm -hmm. um, probably because I'm a bit of a control freak you know if something goes wrong at least I know I'm to yeah. blame and I also I love the mechanical side of things yes I love riding bikes but also like fixing them and cleaning them is that like your happy place I my uh, garage is my yeah. happy place okay. I really it's like my my zen zone you know I feel very comfortable there and I really enjoy working on my bike um, so because I was you know fairly well mechanically equipped I also thought it's another challenge now I can yeah. get better mechanically equipped to work on my bike you know, what's the point of racing a bike out in the mountains if you can't fix it? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I started I'm to... I'm riding with you, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> you can fix our bikes. But, um, but uh, it's, I mean, it, it's another part of this mentally, physically draining thing is yeah. that you have to then pick yourself up and go, okay, I have to change a spark plug yeah. or whatever it may be. I'm not a mechanic by yeah. any means, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. And, that's, and that sort of stuff is what, what, what actually, you know, going into it, I compared it to 2020 thinking that the route you know, I never we, I don't think anyone and even the comments from the top guys were saying and they've done they had done some of them had done Africa then they did the second uh, chapter in South America and now they've done the third the few legends and some of them are saying that they had never done such a difficult Dakar the stages that these oaks were throwing at us were some of the hardest stages yeah. that they've ever ridden at Dakar and then you know it's cool to come back and go park off your camper van but now I'm thinking on this long liaison home I've been on the bike for 10-11 hours it's raining I know I've got to get back into the bivouac 
try find put up my tent in the rain because you, <laughs> now you're thinking on the way back it's not like you're gonna go park off comfy in your warm where it's you yeah. in the rain you know so you're gonna be sleeping out in the rain um you've got to put your tent up in the rain you've got to most are probably start tomorrow with wet kits and now you've got to work on your bike <sighs> in the rain because you can't just leave the bike. There is just, you know, if you've had no problems in the day, there's still a few things that you've got to check. And those few things that you've got to check took me at least an hour. And then when you're getting back, there's no time to waste. You like literally, as soon as you get back, first thing I would do is go get my tent and my mattress, put it up while I was fully kitted. Um, and then from there, I would unkit my kit and hang it out to dry if I could. Um, put on some, some clothes. And while this, I'm drinking a recovery shake, doing, you know, you're multitasking because you can't sit down and have your recovery shake. You've got to do it while you're doing other things. And then while I was doing that, I was trying to eat some food as well, yeah. eat and drink recovery shake. Um, and then while I'm doing that, I'm, while I'm taking my, my old kit off, I'm repacking my new kit for tomorrow, getting that all prepped, sorting out my camel back, packing my jacket, plugging my airbag in for its charge for tomorrow. So I got into, it took me like two or three days to get into the routine because when you first get there, it's very overwhelming. Um, and then, you know, there's, you're, not, you're not close to everything. You have your tent set up over here. Then you've got the big truck with all your stuff in it if you need to it. They'll just put your kit bag out for you because you only had one kit bag with all your stuff in it. And then you've got to walk to your bike and then walk back and then walk to the food hall if you want to go get food hall. If you want to go walk to the toilet, which is on the other side, then you've got to take your tires off and go get it. They've got to get changed. You've got to take them to the BF Goodrich guys. <laughs> and I was racking up 11,000 steps on, over the... F- 16, 17 days, I was doing 11,000 11, steps a day wow. on top of racing for a min- <laughs> an average of 10 hours a day. And then you get in four or five hours max sleep at night. So cool, stage one and stage two, you can feel you're yeah. all right. But then stage three, stage four, and that's happening every day. It's just the fatigue just gets bigger. And you just start making stupid mistakes where you shouldn't, you know, like out riding, you lack, lack of concentration can result in a crash which yeah. is it's, it happen, can happen so easily. Split second. Yeah. And then, you know, you're now on, which I found, which was the hardest part of Dakar, was the liaisons, which is, so we leave the bivouac, which is the pits, mm-hmm. and then we've got a road section. You'll have a liaison A, which is um, the road section on the public roads in Saudi Arabia to the start of your special stage. You race your special stage, and then you've got another liaison B road section back to the new bivouac. And our bivouacs were moving every second day, um, so they were changing location. And the, for me, the liaisons were the hardest part because they were so long. You started them at 4 or 5 o'clock in the morning. It's freezing cold. The one yeah. morning we started was 2 degrees. Oh. Some of the mornings were starting in the, like, pissing rain, excuse my language. You're wet even before you've pulled off. It's <laughs> ice cold. You're riding in the rain. You can't see. And in, in, in that time of where it's at, that, that dawn and that dusk of where it's getting dark and it's visibility you, is, you can't it's yeah. shocking and then now the fatigue starting to set in and you know people I used to hear of people how do you fall asleep on a motorbike you know we had a South African legend who did exceptionally well racing Dakar um, Alma Simmons fell asleep at Dakar and died you know and I thought come on you're on a bike how does that happen I nearly fell asleep wow. on many occasions and it wasn't just me and I got to the start of the one special I'm like guys I can't be the only person falling asleep I even asked Ross like Ross Branch yeah. and he's getting in early every day and sleeping in his camp and he's like yeah to stop and I had to st- stop and do some star jumps and push ups just to try get the blood flowing yeah. just to wake myself up Wow. and then you're on the way home and then you're falling asleep and it's f- so frightening and it just happens like this because you're sitting on these liaisons I mean uh, the longest liaison that we did even before we started racing 
was I think 360 kilometers. Jeez. So it's like going from here to Harry Smith, yeah. then racing a stage, and then going back to it's to Harry, come back to Joburg. Like the one day we did 940 kilometers in one day. That's unreal. And it's just it's it's and that is just day after day after day, and then coming back at night, setting up your tent, to ever seen your bike. Um, just the fatigue just got unreal. And then now working on a bike fatigued is oh, a real big problem. Geez. Forget to tighten a screw. I was about to say. That's one, where your attention to detail has to be has on to be, point. You can't, you can't miss one thing because, you know, just not like I would change my engine oil every second day. And um, I had a liaison and that night I changed my engine oil. And I, like, I was riding on the liaison to the Starler Special, and I was like, mm, let me just check if my oil cap was on tight. Get there. It was just on the last thread about to come off. You lose that in a special, you lose all your oil, race is done. Uh, you know, so just a small thing, like you screw it yeah. back on, but I didn't make it tight enough. Because while you, when you're fatigued like this, you're thinking about other things, and then you're looking at other things, and you're not thinking clearly. So you don't think to go get the... The, the, um, the what do you call pliers and tighten it just yeah. so it nips it you know but it's just small things like that that could really end your race that you don't think about uh, that's something I never even considered going into Dakar <laughs> with doing Malemoto you know the fatigue side of things but it's actually such a, a normal thing you know fatigue is normal but that sort of fatigue I've never experienced in my life so can I say it's the longest grueling race that mentally tests you and demands that the finest margins are taken care of. Of oh, 100%. Because it seems like the odds are stacked against you. From you know, the get in this go. thing. It's like We've the Hunger Games. Some, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're here, thank goodness. Yeah. Goodness. Um, <laughs> Tyler, uh, I know you're up here for some talks. You're doing some, some yeah. motivational talks yes. and your story, which is incredible. Um, I believe they've been going down very, very well. You've shared some photos with us. Tyler, do you mind just uh, pulling up those photos? Because I, I just, I mean, let's just have a look here. Um, I feel like I'm asking about your holiday. It certainly wasn't a holiday. <laughs> no, it wasn't um, a holiday. But I mean, the, the moments there, you can see like... That was at the finish line. I can't tell you that the feeling of crossing the finish line. And for Bryony and myself, that's my partner there, Bryony. Yeah. You know, this uh, was also exceptionally emotional for her because half the time when we were racing, or we, we had two marathon stages... She wouldn't, and their comms, where they were based in the bivouac, they didn't have really good cell phone reception. So there would be two days she hadn't heard from me. And then you hear of a a motorbike having an accident. And then, you know, then they know that we're out there. We've been pulled off the track Mm -hmm. because the rain is so bad because the routes are flooded. So for her, it was also exceptionally difficult. Um, There's some great photos here. Look how wet everything is. I was about to say, is that the desert? We didn't have any dust (laughs) at Dakar. Like, like, in Dakar 2020, I like, my lungs were blowing from all the dust. This wow. year we had no dust just because everything was so wet. And it, you know, in some parts it makes the route easier to ride, but in other parts it makes yeah. it exceptionally hard because now you've got the cars catching you and the cars are catching us very quickly. There's actually a picture of the ju- of a scroll up. Yeah. Um, there's actually, a, no, go down. Sorry, 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 go down. Uh, I'll tell you when to stop. I'm just amazed that there's mountains. Yeah, this stop is there, the, stop there. The desert, so, you know. Go up. Wow. No, other way. Yeah, there, yeah. There. Look at that. So look at that rut there. I don't know if you can enlarge this photo. Yeah, let me click on that one. Um, this middle one here. Yeah, but look there. at the landscape though. It's unbelievable. Look, so now that's a that's a rut from cars. Jeez. So a lot of the stages, the cars were catching us at already like kilometer 70, 80 because they were so fast. Mm. Um, and now you know, it's kilometer 70, 80 of 400, 350 kilometers. 
and a lot of the stages were like this sandy in between these rocky areas. And now that becomes really impossible to ride because you can't go off the track because there's rocks off yeah. on the side of the track. And you've got to stay in this rut and then there's cars coming past you. So you've got to try to get out of this rut and this rut is deep and then these 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 hidden rocks a lot of the way under this under the sand because the cars are flicked over That's and it's crazy. dug deep. So uh, that was a real big battle. You can see me, I'm dabbing there. Yeah, and it's wow. really hard to ride because... Um, it's this massive rut and you, the faster you go, the easier it is to ride. But also at the same time, all these other rocks have come up underneath because you've dug deeper and it was just difficult to ride. And then now you get a car beeping you from behind. He's coming at you at 130 k's an yeah, hour no. and you get in their way. They, they don't, they don't move for you. So is there so, any etiquette? Uh, there was a, there was that there was like top four cars and there were some cars um, in the back that were incredible. Um, because you can you can see who which navigator or car driver was a previous bike rider because they know what it feels like to be passed by I a see. car and how scary it is. Yeah. But there were some some really nasty guys that I complained about because I mean they come past you they don't they're supposed to beep you because they can see you and then they send off an alarm to yeah. let you know that and then we move out the way sure. as quick as we can. Yes. We are not gonna I promise you now. But I'm if you're not stuck gonna in get, a rut like that. I'm not gonna get in the way of the car because no we're gonna come off second best. So Absolutely. we will always try to get out the way as quickly as we can. And they will pass you this close and at not at a safe speed, at a stupid speed. See, I, I look at these desert pictures and that's what I think of. But then there were photos of mountains and rocks and mud. Yeah. I mean, it really tests you. What I would like to find out. Look at the size of that dune. Yeah, I mean, it's mad. Come on. I've never seen such it's big beautiful dunes. beautiful though. Beautiful. Beautiful. But scary. Um, and I mean, I've done, I've done Dakar in 2020. I've done Rally du Maroc. I've done four or five fairly good rallies but this Dakar uh, CS I can't even tell you the riding that they gave us and I was thinking how are cars and trucks going to get through this and they did they got through it but it was it was, and they put waypoints for us to navigate to get to these they put a waypoint on the side of a dune that you would have to like rail the side of it to get up and there was like <laughs> dunes that I hit four or five times to try and get up this dune because it was wow. so big yeah um, just looking at uh, at this it's, it's, it's incredible and uh, when you are doing your talks um, and people must uh, you know if you can reach out to to find out more because I think you've got such an incredible story and we could talk yeah, for please, a very long time um, is it the message of of perseverance of mental toughness of, of believing in yourself because you can say yes you're doing this to achieve something and and your own part of history or be part of something special and inspire people but mm. what is your key message that you're trying to sort of portray here because Kirsten this is phenomenal I mean as I say I'm not worthy I mean I'm in the presence <laughs> of some greatness here but what is the key message you want you want people to know because this tests you on so many levels I mean you question yourself as a rider as an athlete as a, as human, a human being, being <laughs> you know I think um, you know I look back me being here is a whole lifelong journey of experiences mm. to have done this race and this race finishing Dakar 2023, doing it in Malil Motor completely unassisted was certainly the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Um, race. Um, and, you know, the eight-year-old little Kirsten that dreamed of being a sportswoman when she was asked to, to draw a picture of what she wanted to be when she grew up and holding on to that dream. And, you know, there have been so many people that have told me, teachers that have told me, you know, chance of you being a professional sports person is a one in a million shot but it comes along with some belief and, and trust in your ability and you know of course I've had a very supportive um, 
group around me mm-hmm. as my career has grown, you know, starting just with my family as a young little girl. And then, you know, being in a male-dominated industry as a female, and, you know, this is no place for, I've been told, this is no place for women. And women breaking the boundaries and going to things and doing the Dakar and then finishing classes like, you know, Malemoto, servicing their own bike. I yeah. mean, that's back then that was unheard of. And me growing up, there was nothing like that. But I never kind of looked at it in the sense that um, I am. I want to be that, that pioneering groundbreaking woman to set the precedent. It was more of me living my dream because I started riding a motorbike because I loved it and I fell in love with the sport. And um, it gave me that sense of accomplishment because it is so physically difficult and then also because obviously I love the sport and I love the adventure of it but also you know there's been so many things in my career that have knocked me down you know from financials to injuries to you know everything from being told I can't do this shouldn't be here but I mean that has been my inspiration you know tell me I can't do something and it kind of lights that flame and it makes me push to go into something and as well Going back to your question, what is it? How have I done it? I think it's having been brought up to believe that I can do anything I ever wanted to do. So if I, if I, my parents always said to me, you can achieve anything you ever want to if you just do it with, you know, there's no substitute for hard work and it comes with a lot of sacrifice. And it has. And any professional sports person that sits in this seat can say the same thing. You know, it comes with a lot of hard work and sacrifice. But, um, if you just keep working at it and, you know, you get knocked down, you're not going to get knocked down once yeah. you're going to get knocked down many times. I mean, Dakar, I was knocked down every stage, yeah. but I didn't give up. And it's just believing in yourself and just pushing through and just staying true to yourself is also a big thing. That's 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 got me to where I am in my career. You know, I haven't been through a lot of difficulties with, you know, dealing with who I am and who I'm working with. And, you know, as an athlete, you want to get sponsored, but, you know, you know, you've got to stick to what's right and yeah. you've got to believe in yourself and stick to your your truths and, and your morals that you believe are right. And uh, over, as I've got older in my career, that's so important, yeah. you know. And, um, yeah, it's it's no secret recipe. It's just there's, it's just dedication and it's time and it's trust the process. And if it's meant to be, it'll be. And if you want it hard, if you want it enough, you'll make sure you ha- it, it, it'll happen. Let's. You, you said you've been knocked down a few times, and I don't know if many people realize. In 2013, you were involved in a serious crash uh, in Botswana, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's right. And to the point where it was touch and go for you. <laughs> yeah. Um, and if you think back to that sort of point and where you've come now, uh, you know, there's been a lot of hard graft, a lot of perseverance, mm. but. That moment there when you were basically in a hospital, you didn't know what was... Did you sort of think that one day you would go on to do something like this? Because I'm sure, firstly, there you, you, your body is broken. Yeah. Mentally, you, you, this confidence is gone because, as you said, with speed. Um, and it is a race. It's a sport that is dangerous. Yeah. Um, but now you've been able to overcome that go to one of the toughest places to ride in the toughest conditions Mm. and you've owned it. I think, you know, it probably goes back to that um, 
call it stubborn or you know most people thought I would die and the doctors thought I would as my doctor as it was after my last checkup with me said to me you know you're a living miracle I mean I never believed in miracles until here you are in front of me now because of my conditions were so bad and um, yeah, I mean your body like everything went septic yeah you yeah, were in a everything terrible shut down, state yeah. no my doctor he's at a young yes age and fitness but your the condition that you were in it's just, I don't know how you pulled through and that's where he also said it makes me believe in a higher being mm-hmm. but then again also um, having gone through what I've gone through in my life you know when it's your time it's your time and sure. it doesn't matter how you're going to go it's you can't control that you know there's I had all the odds against me but here I am alive today and telling living to tell the tale but you know from that accident I had a massive turnaround in my life you know um, me as a person and who I am and identifying who I am as well um, I had to turn around in the sense that, you know, I was a little bit probably arrogant and in thought, you know, 21, 22 year old, invincible, super fit. As you do. Yeah. yeah. And I thought that I was bulletproof. And yeah. that also made me realize how fragile the human body is and how short our time on earth can actually really be. And then also, you know, stay true to yourself. I was at the time and I, unsure of who I was, you know, but growing, thinking back now, I'm being gay since the day I was born. You know, and you um, knew I knew. Now yeah. I look back now, and it's not like it was a choice. You know, it's this is who I am. But yeah. growing up, it wasn't really an option. You know, not that it is, it is an option for us. You know, people don't decide they're gay one day. Yeah. But it wasn't like it was. It was. I was brought up to believe that it's not accepted. You but know, South so, Africa is, to a large extent, is still like that. You're still yeah. getting people going, oh, that's gay, and they're like, did you actually realize what mm. you're saying? Yeah. And how you can hurt someone? Yeah, for sure. And I think a lot still has to be done for people to realize that. That perception has to change. It has it's to a, change. It's, it's we aren't archaic. any normal people different. We are normal human beings. It's you don't look like you're, you know what I mean? You're not yeah. an alien or something. No. You know, you're a human we being. We bleed the same blood. Come on. And it's yeah. not like I was born this way and that was... Uh, Sorry, it drives me crazy. No, it does, it, like does, it, so. it does as well. And I was at the time not ashamed of who I was because yeah. at that time, I mean, I was 21. It was... Uh, 10 years tw- ten years ago and it wasn't out and as open and uh, socially accepted as it is today and also with my upbringing it was like that so yeah. um, for me to just say mom I think I'm gay wasn't a, really an option yeah. I like had to my sister was very accepting of it um, because she was you know we younger generation it yeah. was around us a bit more but the older generation like our parents not so much yeah. and you know once you make that decision it's your decision for the rest yeah. of your life. You know, you can't be gay one day and the next day, you know, like, no, I want to be straight today, you know. Yeah. But also I I knew because um, going into having this accident, I had met a girl and I had never had an experience with a woman before. And then I knew, okay, well, this is it, you know. And I had my accident and I woke up from that accident and I thought to myself, Flip Kirst, if you had died, you know, yes, a very young age, mm. 22, 21 years old, and you hadn't owned up to your true self and lived your true self because you were worried what other people would think. Like, you can't live like that. And that's when I woke up, and it wasn't like a F you attitude, but it was life is short. I'm not going to ever take a day for granted, and I'm going to live life the way that I want to live my life. And if you don't like it, you're not worth my time. And, you know, uh, that was it. I just, you know, came out (laughs) alive and... You know, didn't openly come out with the gay flag and say I'm gay to the world. I just slowly transitioned into the person I am yeah. today, and I've got a beautiful wife. Um, and well, congratulations on getting married. And yeah, yeah, got married last year. So it's just transition. And at the time, you know, I'm going to lose sponsors. They're not. They're not going to accept you for this, and you're going to lose friends. And 
if anything, it's everyone has been incredibly supportive. But it doesn't define yeah. me for who I am. Of course. It doesn't change who I am. Yeah. I'm still the same person. Yeah. Um, but it's just um, so yeah, that accident was a massive turning point in my life in terms of in terms of me as a person. And then also thereafter for my racing career, I was like, yeah, and now I'm going to take it. Yes, yes, I nearly died, but I'm alive. And yeah. I, there's nothing more I love than riding a motorbike. And yes, selfish, selfish in a sense that my family went through a lot while I had the accident. And every time I swing a leg over a motorbike going forward, my mother oh, terrified. I can imagine. Um, because they were there at the bedside. They're the ones dealing with the doctors. She's going to make it. She's not going to make it. Then they're rushing me in and out of the emergency room because my infection rate has got so high and they've got to clean me out. So they were living. I was out. I was in a coma on a life support. So I literally woke up thinking it was the next day. Had no idea what had happened to me. And it was two weeks later. Wow. So for them, they dealt with, I mean, my mother had to go to trauma counseling after my accident. And um, every day I swung my leg over a motorbike, she would just think. And going to DAC, for me going to DAC on 2020 was like, terrifying for her because she knew the dangers of Dakar as most people do Um, but then again she still supported me because she knew I loved it and this was the biggest love of my life and so yeah coming back from that accident I was like I'm not going to go fast again I'll stick to the hard endure which is what I enjoy more anyway Um, but it also taught me a lot about life and you know just life lessons and I was lucky and I look back at it now and I don't regret it because it's changed my life for the better and um, not many of us get given a second chance at life. And I think that's why it was just important to highlight that sort of watershed moment in your life. Uh, even though at the time it's it's scary and tragic and thank goodness that you're here today yes. with us to tell your story. But it has given you a second chance, a second lease on life. Yeah. And, and we've, we've got a few more minutes. Um, but what I want to ask you is on your sleeve, yeah. I know your passion for animals um, and Sam, I was fortunate to meet. Uh, tell us, how's that going in terms of, have you been able to sort of uh, raise some funds there? How's the feedback been? Because I know you're incredibly passionate about animals. Yeah, there's probably, you know, as over the years, as I've got a bit older, there's a bigger passion that I have than biking and it's animals. Because, you know, I've always grown up around animals as a kid and um, being out in the bike, we tend to go quite a few rural areas mm. and you're out in, you know, very rural um places across Africa and there's always animals and yeah. stuff and I see an animal my heart breaks because they're so helpless and then and, and I've learned the love of a dog they're the most um, unconditional the best. love the best. Um, and I've got five five kids of my own and Sammy being my little number one she's she's like me but in a dog version um, <laughs> that's why and, you guys get on so yeah, well exactly yeah, and she's yeah. the apps, apps and Bryony knows she is the love of my life <laughs> Sammy first then Bryony and then everyone else she's and, the leader of the uh, pack eh? she's, she's, she's such a kiff dog and um I rescued her from Friends of Rescued Animals here in Joburg and just, you know, all my dogs are rescues. And I, through Sam, you know, it's, um, I don't necessarily do too much fundraising. I do more food drives and blanket drives. Um, okay. And if I do do fundraising, it's just through my personal sales of socks and t-shirts, like fundraising, where I'll uh, donate 50% towards Sam and then I'll do not pay for inoculations. Is that through your website? Where can people do that if they want to get involved? Do you don't necessarily. I need to, I need to, because I mean, obviously now I'm getting out a bit more in the public yeah. eye and I am talking about Sam. I need to set up a, you know, a page on my sure. website where people can donate 
um, and know more about it. So I, I will work on that. They can reach out through social media yes. if, if that's okay. Yeah. So I know Instagram, you're very active. Yeah, Instagram and Facebook yeah. um, I'm most active on. And then on my website, there, there are my contact details. Cool. So if you want to reach out through that, you can. But yeah, it's just um, it's just because I'm now got a bit of a following, so I can spread mm. the word of you know rescue, uh, adopt kind of thing, um, food drives, and I'm actually partnering with one of my sponsors now in a bigger way of raising funds to buy food. So Excellent. look out for something like that, which Very is cool, cool and just education as well. Sammy's still chasing tennis balls. She hasn't stopped. <laughs> Hasn't stopped. <laughs> I remember when I first met you, I think, yeah. just before your first Dakar, <laughs> you threw a tennis ball into a dam, and the next thing I just God. see this little dog just <laughs> hurtling and diving straight in and She's getting She's crazy. Ball. She's two cruciate ligament operations down now. She's got to slow it down, eh? Big, she doesn't know. She only knows one speed. <laughs> and I try to throw the ball slower for her, and she knows, like, even if I throw it between here and there, she'll go the same speed. Yeah. Um, she's just ball mad. Um, but oh, again, she's like her man. mother. She'll dedicate everything 110%. There's no half assed It's just yeah. all in or nothing. So when you're not doing Dakar, what do you do? Uh, like, I mean, uh, what do you do to just relax? Obviously, spend a lot of time with Sam and, yeah. and the dogs, the dogs and, and the Cape Town move now. And Cape Town's changed a lot. We have spent a lot more time in the sea now. It is colder than Durban, but it's a bit cleaner. Some big sharks in that sea, hey? Um, I haven't seen any. I don't plan on. Um, but yeah, I enjoy surfing, so I've been yeah. spending a bit more time on say, the surfboard. Yeah. Hiking is so nice. Um, do a bit more road cycling now that there's some nice cycle lanes in Cape Town. Spend a lot of time outdoors, which I enjoy. Um, it's a very outdoors kind of place, Cape yeah. Town. And just, you know, just and obviously work-wise, it's the training schools, and it's now with all of this sort of stuff. And just, just setting up some stuff for the future. Um, so I keep myself busy. Um, what does the future look like? I'm curious because you can't do Dakar for the rest of your no. life. I mean, there'll be a point where you're like, well, I've got to hand the baton over because you're a pioneer, you're a history maker, you're a proud South African, a proud woman who's who's achieved remarkable things. Yeah. Um, but what does the future hold? Because I think the motivational speaking will continue because of what yeah. you've achieved. But you're also a role model not only to, to young women or girls or anything like that, but to everyone in South Africa because there's not a lot of hope in South Africa right mm. now, unfortunately. I think we've got so much talent in South Africa and I think we should, as South Africans, should focus on the good as opposed to the bad because there is so much bad going on and and our sports teams are doing exceptionally well at the moment. Um, so for me, in the future, I'm looking at... I will always be involved in motorsport. Motorsport's my life. Um, you know, in terms of what direction I want to go in, you know, I myself probably maybe have another one or two Dakars left in me on a bike um, in the interim. motor? Yes, I won't okay. go back and do any oh, other Okay, class. so original classes. Yeah, that for me was, yes, it was. the mask, there we yeah, go. Yeah, it was, it was hard and it was, but that's the challenge is, is yeah. what I look for, you got know. You. Um, it also changes the dynamic of racing when you've got assistance. You've got to push harder, go faster, mm -hmm. whereas Malimoto, you're just there to survive and I'm the survivor, you know. I can hang on for as long as I can and just push to get to the finish, whereas you're racing in the normal class you're pushing to get to the finish yeah. the first and that's risk factor and my accident and any four wheels tempting there we go that's the that's the start <laughs> now i'm putting my feelers out it's not as easy um and cheap as bikes sure um so that's where i'm trying to go towards okay. i've put it out so if there's anyone listening that wants uh Sierra Gazoo racing <laughs> uh Glen Hall are you watching so. yeah. um the the first step Intent. would be to jump into a navigational seat but I don't want to navigate I can, no. can't even be a passenger in a car driving on the public roads so I want to drive so okay. whether it be side by side or 
whatever opportunity arises. Amazing. It's the transition is time to start now. So if I go back to Dakar and do one or two bikes, cool. Yeah. But it, eventually it will be car racing, which I'll want to get into. So safer. Um, yeah, not as taxing on the body. Yeah. No, listen, yeah. I think it can be hellishly taxing. I was speaking to some of the drivers at the marathon stage there. Um, and they were saying with those dunes and the impacts, you come off a dune and you flat land onto hard impacts and that impact really? your health. Wow. Yeah. With the whiplash. The whiplash in the head and then also the impact. I mean, that's how Carlos signs. He's broken a few yes, vertebrae. Yeah. It's that oof, that like landing wow. compresses the spine. Okay. So, yeah, okay. obviously the, the physicality isn't is nearly as demanding as a uh, motorbike, but I don't take away from that in the car. Oh, you still have to have some certain, I mean, look at the, how the Formula One guys work on their body and their you know it's an athlete's an athlete whether yeah. you're in a car or on a motorbike it's still so yeah uh, that's the plan and um, you know this motivational talking thing's really picking up it's definitely a good for you that's amazing yeah you've got a great story I'm also waiting for the book to come out ooh, yeah someone said to me you should write a book and I, takes, for me to read a book takes time so now you want me to write one <laughs> <Same>. <laughs> write one <laughs> but yeah um, it's uh, for now I'll still be ra- still racing okay. for as long as my body allows me to that's also and, and how is the body feeling after Dakar? So actually, it's n- not as good as what I would have hoped it to be. But taken into consideration what it went through, yeah, I'm really, really impressed with everything. But I actually went for tests because I started training two weeks after coming back from Dakar, and noted that noted that my heart rate was extremely elevated for my level of exertion to yeah. where my heart rate was showing, like didn't match up okay i mean my heart rate was at 180 on a slight incline on my mountain bike wow and 180 you should be out of breath yeah yeah and i watch my heart rate all the time and for me to get i'm really fit for me and i just hot off dakar i'm super fit now yes for me to get my heart rate to 180 is like i have to be pushing like sprinting yeah you red line yeah yeah and that for me was a sign so we didn't carry on cycling booked into the Cape Science Sports Institute and went to see incredible uh cardiologist there um long conversations what I'd been through turns out that I don't know if you know I was very sick at Dakar I got sick at stage 2 and it lasted up all the way to like stage 9 stage 10 but like the sickest I've ever been I had COVID Mm. results came back positive and um, um, there's obviously you know racing on with COVID at that intensity in that weather for that long and being on antibiotics, you know, you're not supposed to exercise on antibiotics. You're supposed to exercise when you're sick. There you're doing the toughest race. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Hats so, off to you. Wow. Yeah. So I've come back now and I've actually placed a bit of strain on my heart. Okay. Um, it's all clear in the sense that there isn't any red flags, but my heart rate is running a lot higher than okay. what it should be. So I've just got to take it easy for a while until my heart rate um, drops till, to match my level of exertion, okay. which I know it will be. Like for me, walking upstairs, coming up your stairs here out of breath sitting talking to you now I'm at 90 beats per minute where it shouldn't be like that I, I thought I had that effect on people but <laughs> it's clearly not that so. <laughs> but Kirsten uh, uh, I'm glad that you're on the mend and I just want to say I'm a huge fan thank uh, you, I think what you've done is incredible I hope it inspires a whole generation of people not only to do Dakar but to chase their dreams That's it. Um, if they want to be an astronaut whatever it may be a painter that they, mm. they actually those people that tell them they can't they say, Don't well, screw you, me. I'm going to yeah. do it. So keep up the amazing work. I, I want to come and watch one of your, your uh, speeches, <laughs> your talks. I yeah. think it'll be great. And yeah, man, keep on inspiring and doing what you're doing. And um, let's try and get some more money and stuff for Sam. And yeah. and let's build that because I think it's part of your legacy. Yeah. Like it or not. <laughs> Thanks for having me, CS. Thanks for coming it. in. I really appreciate it. Thank you. And uh, as Tyler keeps warning me, please like and subscribe. And we're on iTunes. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, yeah, Kirsten Lutman, what a legend. And it's an honor to have had her in studio.